0: On today's episode of Go Be Wyoming, the whole crew went over to Zach's house and we met up with Mike and Marin Bingle Davis over a phone call. They are two geologists based in Casper, Wyoming. We got to learn a lot about uranium mining, uh, geology in general, and kind of what to expect uh, with Wyoming's energy future. This episode is brought to you by Alpha Graphics. They can help you with any of your printing needs digital, large format, uh, color printing. They also offer other marketing services like web design, social media, uh, and consulting services. So give them a call at 307 674 6277. And here is our interview with Mike and Marin Bingle Davis. And welcome in, everybody. Uh, we've got two special guests today, uh, two geologists in Casper, Wyoming, Mike and Marion Bingle Davis. Am I saying that right? Yep. Just how, it, just how it reads? Yeah,
1: well, a lot of people call me Marion, but there really is no I.
0: <laughs> and it looks like we lost Mike. Where'd Mike go?
1: He went to go grab something. so
0: okay. he will be back in- <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Um, we'll kind of just keep doing our intro. And when Mike comes in, he'll uh, stop in. Um, I'm your host, Aaron Gray. With me today is Zach Gale and our producer, Charlie Roberts. And then on our video camera, we've got Austin Akers as well. Um, like I said, we've got Mike and Maren uh, Bingle Davis joining us. They are a couple down in Casper, Wyoming, and they're both geologists. Um, I'm going to read off kind of their bios a little bit um, A lot of experience here, Zach, and I hopefully, um, we learn a lot about geology. So, so Mike, um, he's a geologist currently working with Kirkwood oil and gas. They're pretty, I'd say mid range company. They're not like a Chevron or Conoco, but they're probably that tier right underneath. So they're a pretty large company. He's originally from North Dakota, went to the university of North Dakota, um, for both his undergrad and uh, grad school. He originally started working in North Dakota for their department of transportation in the West wetland delineation. Um, So he did wetland work first. um, And then he got his kind of first experience with uranium with uh, CAMCO. And again, that was kind of, um, that was before Kirkwood. And now he is the VP of Energy Minerals Division for the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. So we got a a big shot with the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. Um, He has also served on the Wyoming Geological Association. Um, the Society of Petroleum Engineers board, um, the uh, Tate Advisory Board, and he was the 2019 AAPG Section Conference Technical Chair. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, you know uh, committees he's been a part of in a big long history there. And then Marin, she's a geologist for Sunshine Valley Petroleum, that is a um, Wyoming-based company as well. Are they solely Wyoming-based, Marin?
1: Uh, for now, we've had properties other places, but right now we're just Wyoming.
0: Okay, um, so they're pretty mid-sized, you know, Wyoming-based company. Um, she is originally from Michigan. Um, she went to Michigan State University for undergrad, and then went to the University of North Dakota for grad school. Um, did some geological survey work up in North Dakota, doing some fossil prep, and then obviously some work and studies in the Bakken before she went down to sunshine Valley. Um, she is currently a board of directors for PAW and we interviewed Pete Obermuller, um, part of the society of petroleum engineers, um, and also a a chair of the Tate advisory board, um, has also served on the Wyoming geological association board, um, and chaired 2019 on the AAPG, uh, conference planning committee. So again, a lot of, um, I don't want to call them accolades, but positions by both of these guys in the geological um, profession. Did I miss anything, Mike and Marin, that uh, would be worth noting?
2: Uh, I don't No, I don't think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's kind of a, a mouthful. So if, if we miss something, we can just say it in. We can add it in later. So.
2: <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this uh, you know, when you were discussing formats, is this uh, going to be edited at a later time?
0: yeah if there's something that Charlie feels like we need to maybe go back and edit through we'll we'll go through it and edit. um Are you thinking on that intro? Or are you thinking if if we say something that you guys are like, Oh, uh, okay
2: well, just you know when we talk about these things, there's a lot of stuff that you know we're not specialists in these particular fields, so you know there's gonna be corrections regarding you know comments or things like that that sure we're we're, we're going to be as broad based as we can so yeah it's difficult to was really in depth and specific on certain topics if you're not actually involved right so i had to
3: turn mine
0: and that's okay yeah we um We're not going to get you guys with any uh, gotcha topics or put you in a a situation. We just, um, like I told Zach when we started, like, you guys are both geologists. I don't really know a whole much about it, even though I'm in oil and gas. But, um, you know, we're just here to learn and kind of pick your guys' brain a little bit. Yeah. Um, You know, I think, Zach, I think same thing. Yeah, just education purposes, really. Yeah. So. um, yeah, yeah, so you guys can, whatever, whenever we get on a topic you guys want to talk about, you go for it. Um, my, my first question, Zach, is um, you both, you know, kind of met up in North Dakota, and that was kind of your guys' first work. When, uh, what was the first project for you guys in Wyoming?
1: Um, for me, when I first started working uh, for Sunshine Valley Petroleum, we, we had just acquired some properties up by Newcastle. And most of those were muddy formation wells. And so I had to learn a lot about the muddy formation in a very short amount of time. So that was really my first project here in Wyoming is trying to figure that out.
2: She was, she was lucky in the fact that she kind of, uh, you know, when we first moved here, I, I, I had a job at Cameco, um, they were going to pay for us to move and I was under contract for two years. And after that, you know, I didn't owe them anything for the move for setting us up and for my retainer or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I just wanted to get out of North Dakota. I grew up there. I had to get out of there. Um, She was working on her doctorate. And so I said, you know, let's give this, let's give Wyoming a shot. Uh, We moved here. Um, Basically she was in, in looking for a, a geology job basically and happened to run into Wayne Newmiller who is the owner of Sunshine Valley. And his brother was a a geologist for that company and he had just retired, right?
1: He wasn't a geologist, but he had just retired. So they needed somebody else to help out. Yeah. So she kind of
0: gotcha. Uh, Gotcha. So, um, Marin, I kind of want to talk about, uh, let's get into the geology. So what formations were you working mostly in the Bakken? And then kind of talk about why that the Muddy is different, kind of in that Newcastle area.
1: Well, the, the Bakken is a formation. There's a couple lipophases in, in within the formation that might be, you know, considered distinct. But the Bakken itself is a formation. And uh, the difference there is it's a lot older than the Muddy. The Muddy is Cretaceous and the Bakken, what is that, Middle Devonian? It's been a long time, Um, but it's a lot older and it's more of a marine setting. Whereas the muddy is kind of a, a, it's a riverine and, and estuary setting. So it's a lot different. The Bakken is way more shale rich and carbonate rich. And the muddy is pretty much just a sandstone with a lot of clay in it. Why that's why they call it.
0: Right. Okay. Can some people, you know, with my basic knowledge, you know, for me it's usually, you know, the depth. Is that usually kind of an indication of the age and, and or can that be completely different? It could be four thousand feet here and it could be ten thousand feet somewhere else?
1: Well, it exactly. It just depends on where you are in a basin or in a mountain range. It doesn't depth doesn't really matter. I mean the muddy by Newcastle actually outcrops in Newcastle I don't, you, you're probably familiar with the hand dog oil well mm-hmm. over on the east side well that's right pretty much at surface but the muddy you know you go a couple of miles we we own the Osage field mm-hmm. if you even know where that is. and just on the, the, the eastern edge of Osage the muddy is about 200 feet the western edge of Osage is about 4,000 feet so the depth really doesn't make any difference on the age of the formation
0: okay cool Zach, any questions there?
3: Yeah, so uh, just from my own, uh, I'm curious. What's the difference between the two areas? Then, in turn, you know, we talked about shale and the muddy. Uh, but the, what's kind of the composition of the other area that you were working in?
1: Well, um, so uh, across the history of the United States, basically, there is a lot of inland seas that came and went. So, at any given time, there could have been a big inland sea that covered the majority of the continent or there could have been no inland sea and it was all dry land. So during the Bakken, there was a bigger inland sea. So most of that area was covered with an ocean, including us. Um, And then as the ocean retreated, then you get more sand coming in. You get the, you know, more dry land kind of uh, formations deposited. But then the sea comes back and then you get more marine. So it just is going back and forth and back and forth. And that's pretty much what, you know, like, over 100 million years worth of geologic history, that's what we look like is underwater or not underwater. And then we're underwater again. Just, <laughs> yeah.
2: It's just uh, sequences of ocean levels rising and then ocean levels falling. And at the same time, the continents moving around mm-hmm. right. the planet and coming together, then splitting apart. And the oceans come up The oceans go down. So you have dry times, you have wet times, you have big oceans, you have little oceans. Right now, in what we're living as our species, is just sort of a nice, perfect balance. If you look at the planet, the continents are all kind of positioned in a way that they're not all close together and they're not all spread apart. They're almost like perfect, in perfect positions with one another. So it's sort of a weird balance right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, one of the reasons why there were so many inland seas back in those days is there, you know, during the Cretaceous when the muddy was deposited, there were no ice caps, so all of that water was not locked up and you know, in frozen. It was all in the oceans and everywhere else. So the, the sea level was a lot higher, and the same thing back in you know Devonian. There was, it was a lot more tropical, so a lot less ice, a lot more water.
2: And when we were in North Dakota, when we just left. Um was just sort of the gear up in the latest, right? it's not existing right now, but the latest oil boom. Right. So that was fucking like
1: 06? Well, 2010 5. was our last year
2: there. But they started gearing up around 06, 07, yeah. and North Dakota at that time, you could still go to Williston and walk around and not see anybody, basically. You'd see three or four people in the restaurant. No problem just rolling into town and getting a hotel room. But, you know, by the time we left, you uh, really couldn't leave and stay anywhere else outside of Mandan Bismarck and expect to find a hotel room. So,
0: yeah, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, it was pretty crazy.
0: <laughs> I remember. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm hopefully I don't age you guys, but I, I went up and took a visit to Dickinson, and that was my first experience up into North Dakota. And I got we were getting in late, and you could just see all the flares everywhere. Like that's what was yeah. lighting up your trip into Dickinson. You're like, oh my goodness, you are in the you are in the patch now. Um, was right. large.
2: That
1: there.
2: Yeah. So. One of the people we worked with at the geological survey up there, uh, Julie Lefebvre, she was one of the uh, individuals that was instrumental in unlocking the Bakken. And so when Mary talks about the Bakken, that, that's the stuff that was deep, deep ocean, or shallow ocean, I guess, but it, it was, was a shallow. very tight. So there was no way to get the oil out. And we just figured out how to get the oil out of those shales. And that's kind of when we transitioned down to Wyoming. And so, you know, when you talk about geologic history and I say sea level rise, sea level fall, you're looking at stuff, uh, you know, the deposition and where the oil is located is just a function of that. Is it going to be in a river? Is it going to be in a delta like the Mississippi? Or is it going to be, you know, shallow ocean, deep ocean? You know, where is it going to be? Sure. Right.
3: Uh, yeah, well, so Mike, w- want to ask you, too, about uh, your time as a um, at the uranium uh, mine at uh, Cameco. Sure. Yeah, if you just tell us, you know, what was that like? You know, what's some of the... Uh, I, I didn't,
2: you know, the primary area... Anyway, uh, their area, uh, as far as the mine was concerned, I wasn't actively involved in the day-to-day mine operation. Sure. And uh, when you think of it, I, I'm going to start with the, um, I guess, assumption that you know most listeners or yourself don't know much about uranium mining. That's, um, that's
3: true for me. Yes. yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you know, there's a couple of different theories on uh, on how the uranium gets there. But when when I first moved here, I wasn't working at the mine. We had roughly, I want to say, like close to 30 geologists in a building here in Casper. And that's a huge amount. Uh, When uranium booms, it booms. It's not like oil and gas, it's it's very punctuated. And so I was part of the exploration uh, team, exploration and exploration drilling of Cameco's asset. Uh, There were exploration teams, there's uh, development teams, and then there's production teams. And, you know, we kind of overlapped, but primarily I was involved in just the pure exploration side. So, Cameco currently operates, still operates in Wyoming in three different mining locations. Um, one in Smith Ranch Highland, which is just north of Glen Rock. And that was sort of the flagship uh, mine. There's the Crow Butte mine, and that's in Nebraska. And then while I was working there, we opened a third mine that's up by Pumpkin Buttes,
3: mm-hmm. known
2: as North. Um, but my job was basically to take the assets that we had yet to develop and take a look at what they did and then plan drilling programs to figure out exactly how much uh, uranium and, and, and find the uranium at these prospect locations. From Nebraska to some, some, some in South Dakota and also in Wyoming.
0: Cool. And that's what, yeah. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, me being an oil and gas, um, how do you extract uranium? And that's something I, I've actually kind of never asked anybody. Is that the same? Is it the same as oil and gas or, um...
2: Oh, it's very, well, I mean, there's different techniques. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still wells, but, Basically, what you're looking for is, um, you know, uranium is thought to be put in place into sandstone at surface, either coming from a granite source, so like the mountains. The granites are always radioactive. Okay. So once you start to break up granite, it starts to sort of separate out the uranium and the uranium ore and it gets into solution, so it kind of dissolves in the water. Okay. And that water flows through the sandstone at the surface, and that water will carry the uranium and it'll carry a bunch of other stuff with it as far as it can possibly go chemically. So there's a chemistry involved. Mm -hmm. And basically, when it can't carry it anymore, it'll just drop the uranium out. And it drops it out in these sort of ribbon-shaped what are called roll fronts. And those ribbons are located within the sandstones themselves. And so what you do to extract it is you basically drill a central pilot hole right on the ribbon and you drill five wells around it. I mean, there's different techniques, but this is one of, and this is called a five spot. So they would inject an effluent into that central well that would mobilize the uranium again. So it introduced a chemistry or a chemical cocktail that would then cause the uranium to come out of solution in the, in the sand. And then it would slowly, you know, go back into the groundwater and those five wells around it would suck that water back up and then put it through a machine that pulls the uranium out.
0: Gotcha. So that's a, um, could, or I should say, could be, could be a little bit um, kind of a uh, longer detailed process than say kind of your traditional conventional oil and gas well. Is that kind of, I mean.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The water is actually, you know, sent over uh, resin beads and the resin beads are charged and that causes the uranium to come out of solution. The beads are thrown into the dryer banged, uh, banged, banged around and then reused. Gotcha. And the yellow cake is packed into drums and then shipped and, uh yeah. Enriched. Yeah.
0: I just learned a lot right there, yeah, Zach.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, you know, is there a reason Mike then, um, because you did mention you know oil and gas is obviously like a boom um why is uranium why is it so punctuated in their in their boom? um you would think just me being kind of a layman like there's always a need for uranium you know is, is my thinking you know the military always needs it for something and um so is there anything you know and this can be a very broad answer here Mike but uh um you, you know why why is it so punctuated on their boom and bust?
2: Uh, uranium doesn't have a strategic reserve. They just introduced, and Merritt's taking a look, but they just introduced, uh, for the United States to have a uranium strategic reserve. Mm. So at any time, the United States has oil and gas flowing through its pipeline, you know, in Cushing or offshore, oil's constantly on the move uranium, they're long-term contracts, they're being used by reactors and when all of a sudden you stop using it uh, or for some reason it, you know, we decommission some reactors or we decide we're not going to move forward with refurbishing certain things, it drops faster and the, there's a lot of uranium in circulation but not as much as oil and gas and it's not as diverse as oil and gas I mean When we talk about oil and gas, it's got so many different applications that, you know, you can't, it's it's everything you're looking, basically what allows us to survive and live. But uranium really, you know, can be used to generate power to heat um, and also for weapons grade. And so it's got a few limitations as far as applications. Sure. I
1: think they get really afraid of uranium, it scares a lot of people out there. You know, every time something happens like Fukushima, the, the price is dropped like a rock.
3: Sure. Sure. Well, that's something I want to ask too. Aaron and I, a little bit have talked about, you know, people don't like to throw around this idea of, of nuclear power because of those kind of, you know, instances, but we also see some incredible benefits to that. So I was just wondering if you guys could give us some insight to that as well. Well, I mean,
1: it's extremely clean energy if you get away from the whole radioactive waste part of it but if that's the part that scares everybody if we could get a, a really good way of, of getting rid of the waste nuclear energy would be fantastic but you know it also is very scary so I don't I don't know Yeah,
2: you're you're talking about half-life when you have spent uranium obviously there's a cancer risk but it's still the half-life is what? Five million years. So you got to put it somewhere. And as a species, we kind of have a problem gauging where to put what and what's considered high grade waste versus mid and low grade waste. You know, I think there's a classification issue there. Um, When you're talking about reactors, you're talking about, um, graphite rods, uh, liquids. And a lot of times those are mixed in with other types of medical waste and that type of thing. And really you're not going to find a perfect situation on the earth that can contain something for that long. And that's sort of what we're hung up on as a species is, you know, this, this stuff's going to be around for a couple million years. We got to find something that's going to be stable for a couple million years on a planet that's constantly changing. <laughs> doesn't happen. <laughs> You're not. Yeah. So you know, we don't want to settle on a best case scenario. We want to settle on what we would consider to be perfect, and that just doesn't exist. So, right. Um, we have to have acceptable acceptable levels of risk and acceptable. Uh, you know, things that we're willing to sacrifice in order for us to continue to live the way that we do. Mm -hmm. Um, Uranium allows us to do that as long as we can put it in a long-term repository.
0: Sure. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's something I haven't even, didn't even think about. Yeah. Uh, that.
3: Well, so a follow-up question I have is just approximately, I know you guys don't work in reactors, but how much waste do you think a typical kind of nuclear reactor produces um, that you would have to like compensate for? I have no idea. I can't really. <laughs> so, okay, but so basically it's just way more than we could even really, like you said, it's just not a feasible solution to, to storing it or getting rid of that waste.
1: I mean, we still, we have lots of nuclear reactors. We have a lot more than you think Mm. worldwide. But, you know, the waste is such a problem that we can't really have much more without a good solution to the waste problem.
2: Sure. And we're going to move forward. I mean, right now. No way. And and that's kind of, you know, like we were talking about other elements and stuff like that that we're mining you know, we could create a, what's called a breeder reactor, which essentially doesn't have any, I should say very little waste associated with it. It just constantly recycles itself in a closed loop system. And so that type of reactor, we're still, you know, we're still basically when you really look at it and not to do a pun, but when you boil it down, that's all we're doing is really making steam. Sure. So whether we're burning oil and gas or whether we're creating a nuclear reaction, we're just heating water to turn turbines to generate electricity. Right. And that, you know, we're still doing that exact same thing. We've been doing that for, you know, 100 years plus. Yeah
0: right I want to get we'll get to the rare earths because we d- I definitely want to dive into that but um, I do want to ask Marion a question about um, you did some fossil work before um, kind of entering oil and gas talk a little bit about that and like did that did that help in that transition or what are the differences there
1: well um, the, yeah my, all my graduate work was in paleontology that's what I wanted to do but the jobs are, aren't very plentiful, um, but, you know, honestly, it it actually does help a lot because in paleontology, you don't just look at a dinosaur. You look at where the dinosaur lived. You look at how he was deposited, and so you really learn the rocks really well. So stratigraphy and sedimentology was really big in my projects when I was looking at the fossils that were included in them. So transitioning to oil and gas wasn't too bad. You know, I still understood... Um, you know, what ecosystem I was looking at when I was looking at the formation. So like the money formation, I know exactly what that looked like in my head based on the sediments I found, based on the stratigraphy I can look at, based on the fossils that are present in the formation. Because most of these ones that bear oil also bear fossils. So you, you, you can look at them.
0: Awesome. That was, yeah, no, that was good. I was just, I just wanted, you know, um, sometimes there's differences. Sometimes maybe there isn't differences. Um, But um, Zach, do you have anything there before we jump into rare earths? Uh, uh, No, go ahead. Perfect. Um, So Mike, the the first time you and I talked, we were talking about, um, you know, Wyoming outside of uranium and oil and gas, you know, and, and not just, let's not just keep it to Wyoming, but the whole kind of Rocky Mountain area, there's a lot of rare earth um, minerals that we haven't mined really here in the States. You know, uh, kind of hit on a couple of those. Um, you mentioned, is it, you said north of Sundance, is it carbonite? Is that what you had mentioned?
2: A carbonite. What's called a carbonite.
0: Okay. What is that? What is that used for? Well,
1: it's, um, it's basically like a, a, a hydrothermal, kind of deposit it's a is it considered metamorphic or like semi metamorphic?
2: Semi. Oh
1: yeah. So it, it's lots, lots of heat applied. And so when you get all that hydrothermal stuff, you usually get stuff dropping out. Kinda of like when Mike was talking about the uranium dropping out of the, the water. It's the same sort of idea, only you have other minerals and in this carbonatite you get the rarer So yeah, every
2: every once in a while at different locations, especially around mountains and things like that, where you have your granites, you got to think of the, the system of the earth like deep inside it's, it's kind of, it's molten, right? And so being a liquid under a high pressure, it's going to automatically go in and fill in these cracks and then work its way towards the surface. And when it's doing that, it's taking these other elements and these minerals that you normally wouldn't see on the surface just because there's so many times the ocean's gone up, so many times the ocean's gone down, that most of that stuff gets eroded. But when you get a mountain system, you get these cracks or intrusions that bring gold, silver, platinum, palladium, metals, and all kinds of different stuff that's all melted into that rock melt. And as it comes up, it starts to cool, and it starts to interact with the rocks that are next to it. And that's where you get a lot of these things that solidify that normally on the, on the earth's surface, you're not going to see them. Okay, They're going to be too deep. You're going to find them on the surface at that point. And that's where you can then mine those particular uh, locations.
0: Gotcha. So what's, uh, what are some deposits that maybe some people in Wyoming don't, have any idea that we have rare, you know, the, these minerals. Well,
1: you want to continue to talk about rare So You want to talk about another kind of deposit that we have? Well, and we'll just talk about a little
2: bit about intrusive deposits, something that if you guys aren't familiar with, say uh, the Kimberlite district, does that sound you know, familiar to you
0: at all? That doesn't to me. No, so you can that. dive into that. <laughs>
1: So a Kimberlite is basically a—it's like a tube of um, diamonds, essentially. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, it's, it's that hot pipe we were talking about—that's going up yeah, a, a crack.
1: Makes, they call them pipes, but a shape like that.
2: Yep, it's a—it's a long pipe, and it—it kind of shoots that hot molten rock in it, and it contains a ton of diamonds. <laughs> um, and
1: we have one near Laramie.
2: In Laramie We have an entire district So Kimberlites I don't know how many Are down there I don't know. Tens at least Minimum Where For one reason or another A lot of these Kimberlites These pipes Uh Brought diamonds To the surface okay. So between Laramie Diane As north as You know To the uh, interstate And beyond Is a field Of these Diamond deposits In Wyoming Gotcha And that's what you know, a lot of people might not
1: know. Yeah. It's not super high quality like the ones in, you know, South Africa in that area, but they're there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you do not like go out and find them yourselves. I think it's, it's protected land, but they're there.
2: You could if you knew what you were looking for. Uh, right. Probably. Right.
1: But yeah, the reason why we have the rare earths up near Sundance is the same reason why we have all the gold in the Black Hills. It's all during that whole uplift of the Black Hills. And you just get different
0: deposits in different areas, depending on what kind of water it was going through at the time. Sure. Nice. No. Okay. So now, now we can. I think we've got the difference between that and rare earths. I guess what are what are some rare earth ones that um, you know would be valuable, you know, in a national sense that you know that we've been getting from. Uh, you know, other countries that we, you know, that maybe the U S should start considering that we need to start mining those.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, The, the carbonatite is a unique situation in that there's, it's a host for all the other. Yeah. It's like a mixing bowl and all that stuff's in solution. It's solidified. Now it's all at surface. We can dig in and get it out really easily. Technically
1: between um, yeah. the carbonatite <laughs>
2: yeah. and we also we also have pegmatite and uh, you know, if you guys have been to Casper or on Casper Mountain, for any of your listeners that are, are familiar with it, there's a significantly sized um, pegmatite on Casper Mountain that used to be used to uh, mine feldspars to build false teeth <laughs> but then inside that are several of these rare earth elements and kind of like, you know, I pulled a, I pulled a list that I'm going to pull off of um, the Wyoming geologic, sorry, the Wyoming state geological survey uh, report of investigations number 65. And that was written in 2013. So a lot's happened since this and the size of exactly what we're talking about here is significantly larger than what we had thought back then. And, you know, what what Wyoming's got basically is a long, long, long list, you know, when you look at it, of rare earth element bearing minerals um, in that carbonatite and in locations across, you know, originally I, I mentioned just up by Sundance, but you've got you've got basically anywhere there's mountains, you've got emplacements in, um, in the mountain ranges, whether it's the Shirley Basins down to the Rock Springs Uplift, you've got occurrences of all these different elements. And when you look at the, the periodic table, um, the rare earth elements are mostly the lanthanite series, the two bars at the bottom of your um,
1: the ones that don't fit on the
2: regular <laughs> <laughs> You kind of, I don't know how much chemistry you guys have, but you look at it and you kind of think, okay, I know what the periodic table looks like. I don't know what the hell's going on with these two bars down at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> those are your rare, rarer. they're just stuck down there because.
1: Yeah. Like cesium and thorium and yttrium are some of the bigger ones. Gallium is another big one that they mine.
2: Okay. Neodymium, cerium,
1: cadenium.
2: And, and they, you know, they have
1: various, you know, uses, like, I think some are used for, like, cell phones and electronics, some are used for batteries, some are used for making different uh, metal alloys that, like, actually makes the metal stronger by adding the rare earth into the alloy. <laughs> um, what else? I mean, I think they even add it to, like, fertilizers and some, like, supplemental, like, feed and other, I mean, there's a lot of different uses, but I think um, our carbonatite up by Sundance has a big component of thorium, right? Make sure that was the one that was the most up uh, there.
2: Yeah, and again, that's a function of uh, uranium and the granitics, right? Like we were talking about earlier. Um, Lanthium's used for fuel cells, batteries, alloys. Neodonium and galenium are used for lasers, fiber optics, And uh, yttriums used for cell phones, alloys, microwaves, and uh, right now California and its Mountain Pass mine makes about fifty thousand. Has a total of around fifty thousand tons of this material, and I don't remember where I heard it, but I thought that that was sort of on its last legs, and so you know China will increase its cost to us whenever we mine we get it processed in china they'll tack on another 25% and then turn around and charge us to to get it back sure and so the things that we have like i was saying up in sundance has a substantial uh, component of uh, yttrium for instance and that makes glass and lasers and and, and stuff inside your cell phone without it I mean, you think about how many flat screen TVs you have in your house, and it might be just fractions of a gram of each one of these rare earths that allows us to have this new technology. But those those elements are just, right now, are primarily coming from China, and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah.
1: Like our mine and up at Sundance, it's not going right now. They want to get it back up and going, but... They didn't get to the production
3: stage yet. They got shut down. Sure. Wow. Oh, that's, that's super interesting. I had no idea.
0: Yeah, that was good. And so that was, um, so you referenced one back from 2013, Mike. So has, has the Wyoming state geological survey, have they re up that at all? Um, you know, you don't have to pull that, it up.
2: Nope. Not that I know of. Uh, it's, it, it's a function of, you know, permitting and getting the necessary to get a mine yeah regulations if you, if you want to drill an oil well you could realistically get an oil well drilled in a couple months a yeah. couple months but if you want to do a mine where you're extracting these metals and these minerals years you're looking at years yeah the, sometimes
1: tens of years depending on the regulations
2: hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. The, the the North Butte mine for Cameco you know, went online when I was there, but I know that the permitting and the structure behind it all had been in development for, I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you.
3: Well, we,
1: The the capital on the front end, it just takes a ton of capital to get it up and running. But often it you know, projects die before they even really get started.
0: Right. We've, we've kind of seen that experience for Ramaco and they're all they're doing is just pulling coal out of the ground to study. And I mean, that took them, they had to fight regulations and in, in groups up here for three, four years. And it's like, Holy cow guys, like all they're doing is just studying it. Like, <laughs> um, but that's coal, you know, coal has a bad rap. Regulations well, so. yeah.
1: <laughs> are the biggest hurdle for all of us as, you know, energy uh, people. <laughs> you know, oil and gas may not have as many hurdles to cross as the uh, uh, mines do, but you know, you think about how long it takes to get federal permits through or federal studies through just to drill an oil well. I think that's our biggest hurdle right now, is the regulators. <sighs>
3: It's interesting. So, really, what I'm hearing is the uh, you know materials needed to build some of these renewable energies, like solar panels, and to make those kind of microchips can be found here in Wyoming. Um, but oh yeah, uh, yep, yeah. So, yeah,
2: throughout you know, Wyoming's got a, a significant, significant amount here, and uh, you know, there's absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be taking taken seriously. You know, immediately, um, if we're going to make this transition away from oil and gas, like, you know, so many people are planning on doing, in order for that to function and to happen, you have to basic, basically unleash mining. Mining's bound up, too. I mean, either one way or another, we're going to pull something out of the ground to burn. Um, <laughs> if you don't want to do fossil fuels, you got to have something else. You, you know, you're going to need the metal. If you want to get the metal, you're going to have to level the mountain. Um, really, there's no there's no way around getting a footprint. And um, I guess I pulled you know I pulled some information about you know that rare earth element, uh, it You know, it started. It says in 1949, and that was when it was first reported. And that was the uh, the monzonite. And the monzonite is a is an element that contains uh, cesium, lanthanum, yttrium, and thorium. And so the yttrium's for lasers, the thorium's for glass, lasers, tungsten, um, for fuel cells, batteries, alloys. That's a mom's, it's called, I can never monazite. pronounce it. Monazite. And so, you know, back in the, in 1949, they knew that there was monazite. Monazite? Monazite is present <laughs> there in and around Sundance in, in the Bear Lodge Mountains and so starting from that time to now you know it's gone through several stages of where it's worth a lot where it's worth nothing and the problem is is that you don't have those regulations in China so if you've got a, if you've got a foreign country it doesn't matter whether or not they have more of that, particular material or less, if they don't have the hurdles to jump through to get it into production and get it into market, then they're allowed to put it in cheaper, and that does not make it lucrative for states like Wyoming. Sure. It's just, it's not economically uh, feasible, really.
0: Yeah, let's keep, let's dive into this. I don't know if you guys had time, the Energy School of Resources had a study come out regarding Um, pretty much saying, you know, Wyoming needs to think about being an energy exporter, which um, Zach and I, a couple weeks ago, talked about the energy, um, what was it, the the energy agency or whatever, the national, whatever.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Wyoming already exports 40% of our energy. and, And then the study from the university is like, we need to be an exporter. So I'm sitting here like, well, we already are. So I don't like, I think this is exactly what we're talking about is, Okay, we can we can do all the things. Like we can do uranium, we can do oil and gas, we can do your your rare earths. Um kind of talk about that yep. a little. I mean, this is what we're talking about, but um anything to add on to that from your guys' perspective? That just the disconnect.
2: It's exactly like you're saying. I mean, well, you know, I pulled up you know, when you boil down and think about exactly, you know, what is the issue here? You know, what is the problem? And the problem being, you know, we're burning too many fossil fuels, or we're putting too much carbon in the air. And, you know, we got to stop that. The globe is warming, and it's our fault. And, you know, we all have to work together. We have to switch what we're doing, change what we're doing, save the earth, save humanity. We all have to you know, take cuts and do what we can to, to save the planet. And that mentality in itself is somewhat of a problem, I think. You know, um, the idea that if somehow we could just do something differently, that we could feel better about what we're doing. Um, the disconnect being, you know, the, the the larger cities versus the smaller cities, without going into greater detail about, say, the election, Um a person can look at district maps based on voting trends, right? And so you see the bigger cities voting a certain direction and you see the rural and the non densely populated areas voting another way. Um, And I think that is reflective of basically people that are in larger cities grew up in larger cities and don't know anything beyond that where their energy comes from? Where basically anything comes from, whether it's the hamburgers they eat or whether it's the power that they use. It's just this magical thing that, you know, is provided for us. And, you know, we really don't, they do not grasp the entire chain of events that leads to them being able to put on the pair of glasses in the morning or paint their house with. Sure. Um, yeah, and so, you know, they want to get rid of the things that they see that as ugly without making the connection that, hey, it's this industrial revolution, it's these factories that are allowing me to go kayaking, that are allowing me to go to a hospital and use sanitary equipment and not worry about things like dysentery or third world type uh you know, diseases that you'll get if you don't use these types of products and that disconnect, I think, you know, a huge, huge, huge problem with, uh, with what we're going through right now. Um, so, you know, we're basically voting for these initiatives from people that don't really fully understand what, what they have and where it came from.
1: And I don't know if that's, you know, our fault as an industry or if it's just something that we can't help. You know, I we, I try to, to tell people how things really are, you know, how thing, where things come from. But I don't know if they're truly listening to me. So I don't even know, if, even if our industry did a better job of getting the word out, I don't think people would listen, honestly.
0: <laughs> well, in, in and... Yeah. And something I wanted to add is, you know, uh, one thing I think we all can agree on, you know, Mike, you talked about it with uranium, (laughs) you know, if sure we could go full, let's just build a lot more nuclear reactors and go full, you know, uh, full nuclear, you know, but we have to at least acknowledge, you know, when we have to, you know, decommission those, we've got waste, you know, we have, you know, something has to happen there. And then you said with the rare earths, you know, if if we want renewables, we're still going to have to take something, you know you know, out. So I think that's yeah. the first step is real. Like everyone has to realize, like, we're not going to get out of this without leaving an imprint, you know, on something. And then I think that's the first step. And then, uh, um, y- you know, yeah. Then education as best as we can. Uh, but, um, no, that was wonderful. Zach, do you have anything to add on that?
3: No, I think that's, you hit it right on the head. You know, we, um, people take advantage of what they've got and I think we can even do that sometimes here. Um, but, yeah, no, that's a great, great point. People, people either don't want to learn, or they, you know, pretend to to be the enlightened individual. <laughs> it's like an industrial shame, you know. We have this sense of shame. It, it just,
2: I think what what happened was it just happened too fast. And I I pulled some numbers because you know, Marin and I always say we don't have a litter problem. Or we don't have, you know, we don't have a pollution pollution problem. problem. We have a littering problem. We don't have, uh, what are some more examples?
1: Well, basically what we're saying is it's not necessarily like industry that's the problem. It's the mass amount of people that are the problem. There's just too many people on the planet and you have to support them all. And right now, the only way to do that is by having industry. There's no getting around it. So people don't like that so I, yeah I, they do want to talk about that you see the, pic, you see the
2: picture of the, uh, the dolphin with a six-pack ring around its neck and you'd like to say oh that's horrible you know well really it's not industry's fault for manufacturing that six-pack ring it's the person's fault for throwing it into the water yep. and you've got eight billion people on the planet what are you gonna right. do Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to go over a couple quick numbers I pulled up. Yeah. You know, as of, as of, you know, when I left work this afternoon, we had 7.8 billion people currently on Earth. And when you look at the population curve, you know, it starts in 8000 B.C. The popu- that's when we first learned agriculture. Uh, the population of the world was five million. And over 8,000 years, from 8,000 B.C. to basically 1 A.D., we then had 200 million people. And some even say like up to 600 million people on the planet. Now, that was just because of agriculture. So at that point, we started to have larger scale farms. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden around 1800, so it was in balance at that point until around 1800, it hit it finally hit 1 billion. The second billion, we hit 2 billion 130 years later. And Ooh. then 30 years after that, we hit 3 billion. <laughs> and then 15 years after that, we hit 4 billion. And in 13 years after that, we hit 5 billion and that was in 1987. And now it's 2020, And we're at 7.8 billion. And the reason why is because of uh, the industrial revolution. Yeah. Yep. We didn't have people dying. You didn't have, the only reason why people are able to stay alive where they're at, be comfortable and stay alive as long as they possibly can is due to the industrial revolution. While at the same time, we want to undercut that. So, in order for us to go and be sustainable, we have to somehow reconcile the fact that 7.5 billion people on the planet have to go somewhere else. Right.
1: And nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to. I
2: mean, that's, that's, that's the truth. Um, you know we all want to say let's redistribute wealth or let's switch to a different form of energy um not to be all doom and gloom i think there are solutions i think one of the biggest things we could do is kind of like what you touched on some things that wyoming could do right now and i find it and i don't again this is one of those things i don't know if i'm speaking the facts right but south of Casper, southeast of Casper, we have the Dave Johnston power plant. And if I know or if I'm thinking about it correctly, that's coal fired. Right? Mm-hmm. And right next to it, literally, you could throw a rock and hit it, is a natural gas pipeline that's got a diameter of you know, a couple feet. And why Wyoming? You know, when you bring up being a, a net exporter of energy, why are't we firing up that coal-fired power plant and using natural gas, which has a low, low, low footprint and is widely acknowledged by several articles I even pulled out today, as a good transition or means to bridge the gap between where we're at now and where we want to be? Um, we could do that. Uh, several other things you know we could do along the way also.
0: Sure. Right. And I think that this right here is one of the reasons why we started the show. And I think it's just having the conversation, you know, acknowledging that, you know, these are the, these are the real problems and let's find a real solution to it. And, um, you know, and, uh, that, that's, yeah, no, that was awesome. That was great. Um, Zach, do you have, we, we've got, a, we don't want to go too long guys and take up too much of your time. And, um, but, um. I have some kind of some fun light questions that we can kind of end out on, but Zach, if you have anything to, to ask, go for it.
3: Uh, no, go. let's go ahead with the, the fun stuff.
0: Okay. Um, for both of you, what was kind of like the light bulb moment? Like you, you, um, you know, Marin, you kind of mentioned you knew like you wanted to be in, the, um, you know, fossils, geology, like what was, what, what drove you to that?
1: Um, well, where I grew up in Michigan, it, um, there's a lot of, uh, Well, there's a lot of gravel, basically gravel pits, you know, it's all glacial. And, but if you sit and you pick through the gravel, you find fossils. And I just sat there when I was a kid, like I probably started when I was maybe five, four even. And I would just sit there and pick through the gravel, finding fossils. And you can ask my parents, I would bring everything home. I had rocks everywhere in my room. And ever since then, I wanted to do something with it. And then eventually found out, oh, wait, it's an actual science called geology and paleontology, and people actually get jobs doing it. <laughs> yeah, the paleo thing, and I still love fossils. I still go out with the Tate all the time whenever I can. But, you know, most of the jobs in paleo are academic, so there's not a lot of them. But oil and gas is, is, is a close one to paleo, and it's a lot of fun. I love my job.
0: Right. How about you, Mike? It's
2: hard to pin down, actually. Um, I guess what got me was the, the ability, you know, when you start out in geology, you know, it's an option that you could either take physics or you can take geology uh, when you're in college for your lab science or whatever.
1: And who wants to take physics? And so a lot of people get steered <laughs> away.
2: From, you know, and I had to have one. I was going to be an archaeologist, and I still think it's interesting. And I got to you know, my junior level. And I had to take my lab science. Well, I took geology and something clicked. And so I did end up at that point switching over to geology and ended up having to do all my math, all my chemistries, all my physics, all the stuff that I was trying to get away from, I got sucked back into. (laughs) But I think the thing that I like most about it is mapping these Forgotten terrain that exist under your feet. So kind of the mental fast forwarding and rewinding of time, you know, and and sitting there and looking out your window and realizing that at one point, eastern Wyoming was a braided stream that flowed into an inland sea that covered up most of the United States. And, And we've got proof of that and it's trapped oil it's trapped gas and every once in a while you get some something that pokes up through the surface that brings up a metal or a mineral and you know we we only recently like i was saying with time you know in in humanity's time scale we've only recently started using these rare earth metals to do stuff i mean Shoot, we've got three flat screens in our house right now. Smartphones came out what in this lifetime? Yeah, I would yeah. say over twenty yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what's next? Yeah, right. you are know, gonna pull else yeah. out of the ground, and, and it's and, all geology.
1: Yeah, everything
2: comes out of the ground. <laughs> it's awesome. So,
1: yeah, that's what makes geology fun. Is it? You know, we don't think on short time scales like couple of years we think on um, you know timescales of millions of years you know if it's less than a million years and who cares about it
3: yeah
2: right. <laughs> we you know as a species we talk about like you know we we should really try to change the weather patterns on the entire planet to prevent a two degree warming planet-wide yeah. and it, it's like wait what <laughs> Like,
1: you're not gonna, yeah. to do that.
0: Ten thousand years ago, we were covered in ice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so it yeah. keeps keeps your perspective. So um, that's great. Um, Found you. All right, so last last one. Hopefully, this is kind of funny. Um, Marin, what was maybe the worst? Uh, project so it don't it doesn't necessarily have to be client or anything but like project that you were on or, or maybe it was a study and then we'll ask Mike the same thing and maybe not worse but like weird like just kind of the weirdest geology weirdest you know
1: Ooh, weird huh?
0: Or bad could yeah. it just it could just be bad. <laughs> could that be a project we worked on.
1: Well can it be weird in a good way
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be okay. something you worked on, Mike.
1: <laughs> well, I, I got one. So um, my PhD was actually on a bunch of fossils out of India. There were these uh, massive volcanic eruptions right about the time that the dinosaurs went extinct. I mean, huge, like as in like kilometers thick of lava. And uh, so I got to go over there and we went to one of the um, localities and we were messing around and we found these orange colored layers, like yellowish orange, but the whole bunch of them and, so we were, we were asking people about them and we found out that they were actually iridium layers. And if you know anything about the, the big impact um, that killed the dinosaurs, you know, the asteroid impact, what it did is it shot iridium up and made an iridium layer, but it was just a single layer. So we found this site in India that has like at least three of these iridium layers. So it makes us think like, what the heck made three different layers if it came from the impact?
0: Right. Okay.
1: Is that count kind of as weird? Yeah, that was cool. Oh, no, awesome. no, that was,
0: yeah, that was cool. <laughs> I'd
1: love to go back and work on that locality, but it's kind of in a different country, so it's a little difficult.
0: Yeah, it's a little tough. All right, Mike. <laughs> oh, man.
1: Yeah, top that one. <laughs> things that I can think of that aren't funny that are kind of sad, but... Oh. We'll talk about any project working in the wetlands of North Dakota, and that'd be a horrible project.
2: Yeah, I also, you know, like I was saying in my bio, I, I worked with the wetland restoration project in banking, and, you know, that was horrible. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, this, 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 this small dogs
2: and pigs and, you know... You get to the western part, you got rattlesnakes. Right, 110% um,
1: humidity. That's
2: awful. Yeah, I, you know... <laughs> As far as comical, there's a lot of mishaps, a lot of funny things. I don't wanna I don't wanna put anybody on the spot, but yeah, you know, there's regular times throughout every job I've had that you kinda go, Wait a minute, what are you what are you doing? Right. (laughs) You know, and you kinda just you can't really figure out what where this person's head at with you know, what What they're exactly planning on doing. I guess I could bring up a story when uh, Marin and I were working on, we had a well we were doing that was her company, uh, Sunshine Valley, and my company, Kirkwood, and we were working on the well and we had a piece or a piece of equipment, it was sub-zero, middle of December, January, something like that, and a piece of equipment that didn't fit. And so, The roustabouts called, tried to get the part out of Casper. Part wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Tried to get the part out of uh, Newcastle. The part wasn't there. Finally found a part. At this point, you know, we had driven back to Lusk, got a hotel room, ate some dinner, drove back to location. If you work on location, invariably, you know, the reason you need to be there is going to happen at like two in the morning. Right. So they finally get the part. Part shows up at two in the morning. But what they had figured out was that they were just trying to attach the wrong side of the pipe. <laughs> piece of equipment. Had they just flipped it around, it would have went on really easily. Oh, man. <laughs> and I want to say 11 hours trying to figure that out. Oh, man. It was horrible. Yeah. Uh, I don't
0: know. That, sound, yeah. that sounds like your traditional oil and gas story, you know, just, you know, trying to find a part, trying to get something going. And it's like, Oh, just flipping around. And there you go. Right. <laughs> uh, right. yeah.
1: All the parts right here on the back
0: of the truck
2: the whole time. Oh, geez. Oh, awesome. yeah, yeah. Or the guy that, uh, you know, there's a, each one of those rigs operates like a miniature city. And there was a guy out there that was working a, a generator and it threw a rod and we called the motorman down from the rig and he took a look at it and you could see where the, the rod had hit the inside of the engine and was like from the inside out. And the motorman opens it up and he goes, did you even put any oil in this? It had been running for 48 hours. He oh. said, He said, no, but it came with some oil because it was brand new. So he walked to his truck and in the generator's box was the oil you're supposed to put into it
0: when you first started up and and he didn't do that. Oh man. I don't know. Oh, that was good. No, that was good. That was perfect. Um, well guys, um, I feel like we're going to do this again and hopefully we do this in person or if you guys are ever up in Sheridan, um, we could do that. I know it's kind of hard with some little ones, but, um, we're right at an hour. So we try and keep it kind of maybe right at an hour point just for people listening. But, um, I learned a lot of stuff that, um, I kind of was sitting here when you guys were talking, I'm like, man, I, I'm the dumbest person in this room right here, but, um, that was great. That was perfect for the listeners. I think, you know, just the general history and, and, and just what Wyoming has, you know, here and, and, really kind of this whole area really geologically. But, um, thank you guys for hopping on. Um, Zach, do you have anything else to add there too?
3: Yeah. I just want to say thanks for coming on. It's, you know, the cool part about, uh, doing what we do is we get to have these really cool conversations and we get to learn and, um, you know, people, uh, don't realize, you know, who's kind of in their communities and, and what they can learn from others. So th- thanks for coming on guys
1: oh no problem Anytime. thank you yeah
3: we could
2: talk for all we could talk for days <laughs> yeah
3: no yeah and we'll, we'll do this again but um
0: we'll let you guys go to your evening and uh, sorry for the delay this uh the, the start of it but uh we'll talk soon okay. all right hopefully. thank you so much yep thanks guys <laughs>